Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 and reading through verse 31. Hear now God's Word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, uh, for indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard, heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. You may be seated. It's been a hard few weeks for me. Uh, that is until I look around and realize that some, perhaps many of you, have had much harder weeks than me. Uh, some of us, perhaps many of us, had hoped that we had a formula that would make it all easier by now. Uh, but the realities of life and of sin have pushed back and things have not necessarily turned out the way we had hoped. We are tempted to grow cynical, to grow weary and even bitter, to withdraw, to complain, to blame, to criticize, to grow weary before the battle is over. But if you're still here, then the battle is not over. There are all kinds of battles that Christians are engaged in. There are personal spiritual battles there are battles within families, and then, of course, there, are, there is the big battle with the spirit of the age. 
I am torn between my own temptation to join the ranks of those who have given up and given in and those who courageously stand up and fight back and press on. I am inspired by those who earnestly pray and who seek the Lord and faithfully serve in the face of opposition. The Apostle Paul admonishes us in Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. There is no coasting or quitting in the Christian life. We are not finished yet. God is not finished with us yet. Peter and John and Paul and thousands and thousands of other Christians have had it harder than you and me, and we have something to learn from them. Paul recognized he still had a ways to go when he wrote in Philippians, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And I want to urge you, even as I speak to myself, to stop your pity party if you're having one and get up and get going again. We have something to learn from these early followers of Jesus, so let's take a look. Our story in Acts, as our story in Acts unfolds, we find Peter and John battling with the ruling authorities. This was only the beginning of trouble. Remember just a couple of months earlier, Jesus is crucified. They're shaking in their boots. They're frightened. They don't know what's coming. They don't know if they're next. But here they are just 50 days or 60 days later. Um, and their God is already doing mighty things. And now uh, Peter and John have gone to the temple. They've healed the man who was crippled from birth. And, and then Peter has preached a couple of sermons. Thousands have come to believe in Christ. And so, but that evokes trouble. This is the beginning. Many of them, in fact, would lose their lives for Christ and for his kingdom. These earthly authorities were used to being able to go out and just round up opposition, bring them in, put pressure on them, threaten them. Uh, and to shut down whatever, whoever they perceived to be troublemakers. They would haul them in and intimidate them, or in the case of Jesus, make a public spectacle of them, make an example of them. The goal was to shut them up and to shut them down. Usually, the accused would stand before the Sanhedrin with little or nothing to say. But in this story, the apostles would have a great deal to say. It was apparent to the Sanhedrin that these were, in fact, uneducated and untrained men. The Greek word is idolatai, is where we get our word idiot. In other words, they hadn't been to seminary. The leaders of the Sanhedrin took note, however, that these men had been with Jesus, who, by the way, also lacked formal theological education and professional status as a rabbi. So Peter and John had been with Jesus for three years, and it appears 
that they probably also had a very short but intensive course of about 50 days with Jesus after the resurrection, putting it all together, preparing them for moments like this. And as a result, uh, the Sanhedrin is now walking a political tightrope. If they do too much to Peter and John, they're going to have a mess on their hands because of all these thousands of people who are now professing to be followers of Jesus. On the other hand, they had backed themselves into a corner. They had really overplayed their hand. Uh, Nevertheless, they now had to do something. So this well-known 40-year-old crippled man who had been dramatically and publicly healed was standing right there with John and Peter for all to see. And the Sanhedrin was basically speechless. They couldn't deny it, and yet they wouldn't acknowledge it either. How do you rebut this? So they take Peter and John and the man who was healed, and they escort them outside the chamber uh, and, and the, so that the Sanhedrin can confer in private about what to do with them. And so we get a behind-the-scenes look at what they said. Uh, liberal critics of Scripture point out that Luke, there's no way Luke could have known uh, what the council said behind closed doors. Uh, but as liberal critics often uh, don't think very much about the uh, other possible explanations like uh, perhaps Paul or Nicodemus were present and could have reported what was said. Or more likely, Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, was present and he could have just simply told Paul, who was his student, what had happened. There's any number of explanations. So what could they do? All they could think of at this point was to severely threaten them to speak no longer, to speak to no one in the name of Jesus, the very name which had healed the crippled man. And to this threat, Peter and John boldly replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but help speak the things which we've seen and heard. In other words, no. The court made some more threats and then let them go. It did not, it just didn't seem possible to actually punish them at this point because it says all the people were praising God for what had happened. And so Luke emphasized that this was especially, again, because the crippled man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. He keeps emphasizing the fact that this was not some obscure thing that happened and we're not sure who this guy was. Virtually everybody knew who this man was and knew it day after day, year after year. What was the apostles' reaction to the council's prohibition about speaking about Jesus and to their threats? Well, upon release, Luke tells us, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And then, immediately, they turned together to pray to God. So let's talk about this prayer. 
I think this is a model prayer like the Lord's Prayer. I think it has something to teach us. This prayer is instructive for all of us who face trials and battles and various challenges. This, again, is another model prayer. We've seen the apostles in the council, and now we see them in the church. Having been bold witnesses, now they are going to be bold in prayer. The first word of this prayer was despota, sovereign Lord. You ever forget that God is sovereign in your trials? You ever get overwhelmed with the circumstances and the situation and the problem and you forget that he is the sovereign Lord? A term that is used of a slave owner and of a ruler with unlimited power. The Sanhedrin might indeed threaten them and prohibit their speech. The civil government might try to silence the church. But the civil authority was subject to an even higher and ultimate authority. Nothing men say can overturn the word of God. And so we start our prayers with the recognition that God is always in charge. First, they they say, He's the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. That's a great place to start a prayer. If he can do that, then he can handle your situation. That's essentially what he says to Job, right? Job's complaining about his sickness, about all that he's lost. And he says, God, I have a bunch of questions for you. And Job, and God basically says, Job, have a seat. I've got a few questions for you first. And then for a couple of chapters in the book of Job, God asked Job, where were you when I created the world? Where were you? Who do you think feeds all these animals every day? Who do you think manages all of this? And in effect, Job was saying, God, why me? And God never answers Job directly, but he answers him indirectly. And he says, Job, if I can do all of this, I can take care of you. Second, Not only the God of heaven and earth and the sea, and he made all that, but he is the God of revelation who spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of his servant David. God reveals himself. Then they cite Psalm 2. We've seen already in Acts lots of scripture quoting from the Old Testament, from the apostles, and now the church itself is citing Psalm 2. Already a first century B.C., it was recognized as Messianic, which had foretold the world's opposition to Christ with nations raging and people plotting and kings opposing, uh, assembling against the Lord's Messiah. Psalm 2 begins by asking, why the rulers of this world are in such an uproar. They have plotted and they have schemed against Jesus, and now they continue against his apostles. Psalm 2 speaks of a Messiah, though, who is destined to rule the world. Paul will describe it this way in Romans 1. Concerning 
His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Third in this prayer, they point out that he is the God of history who had caused even his enemies, for example, Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews who had united in a conspiracy, verse 27 here in Acts 4, to do what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The God of creation and of revelation and of history whose characteristic actions are summarized by these three verbs, you made, you spoke, you determined. Now that's a bold prayer. With a reminder of who God is, they are humbled before him. And now, and only now, are they ready to make their request known to God. The first request was that God would look at their threats. Notice that they didn't pray that those who threatened them would come under God's judgment or that God would remove the threats, but rather that he would just consider their situation. Lord, you know what's going on here. You know all of it. You know the the secret counsels. You know all the details. Second, The second petition was that God would enable them as his servants, literally slaves, to speak his word with all boldness. That was their main concern. Third, the third request was that God would, quote, stretch out his hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of his holy servant, Jesus Moreover, the word and the signs would go together, speaking with boldness, and now these signs would validate and verify that they were indeed from God. They would confirm the word that was proclaimed. In answer to their united and earnest prayers, the Bible says, Luke records, that the place was shaken. And Chrysostom made a great comment on this. He said, That made them more unshaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word with boldness. Now just pause a moment. When's the last time you spoke the word with boldness? Not rudeness, not abrasiveness, but boldness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you what Christ has done in my life, what he is doing. Have you done that? Have you prayed for that? Have you looked for that opportunity? This is the church getting off the ground in the face of enormous opposition. And what they're concerned to do is make sure we don't compromise God's word, that we don't cave in, that we don't give in, that we don't slink away into the dark that we don't just zip our lips and make sure we don't ever cross any lines or offend anybody, 
You ought not be offensive, but the truth is always offensive. Perhaps the three most notable features of Luke's narrative in Acts 3 and 4 are the spectacular healing miracle and the prayer for more, the Christ-centered preaching of Peter, and then the inevitable outbreak of persecution. I want to say something about signs and wonders or miracles. There are questions about these signs and wonders or what we call miracles. Were they real then and are they still present with us today? We've seen or heard of many cheap versions of so-called healing that we might be tempted to lump, and we might be tempted then to lump them all together. I remember uh, in high school attending a a meeting, a healing service, uh, where a woman came forward and they healed her of her fear of birds. Um, Things like that, that just, uh, you know, like, eh, I don't know. I don't think so. So let's start with a question. Are, are, these, are there miracles? G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, Grant the truth of the first verse in the Bible and there is no difficulty with miracles. A few things from Chesterton I thought were helpful. He said, The most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. He says the whole order of things is outrageous. That is creation, right? As any miracle, the normal stuff is as outrageous as any miracle which could presume to violate it, right? Here's a longer statement. But my belief that miracles have happened in human history is not a mystical belief at all. I believe in them upon human evidences as I do the discovery of America. Upon this point, there is a simple logical fact that only requires to be stated and cleared up. Somehow or other, an extraordinary idea has arisen that the disbelievers in miracles consider them coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma or faith. The fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. Materialism. The open, obvious thing is to believe an old apple woman, a woman selling apples on the street, when she bears testimony to a miracle, just as you believe an old apple woman when she bears testimony to a murder. If it comes to human testimony, there is a choking cataract of human testimony in favor of the supernatural. It is we Christians who accept all actual evidence. It is you rationalists who refuse to accept uh, who refuse actual evidence, being constrained to do so by your creed. If I say medieval documents attest certain miracles as much as they attest certain battles, they answer, but medievals were superstitious. 
And if I want to know in what way they were superstitious, the only ultimate answer is that they believe in miracles. Iceland is impossible because only stupid sailors have seen it. And the sailors are only stupid because they say they have seen Iceland. The skeptic always takes one of the two positions. Either an ordinary man need not be believed or an extraordinary event must not be believed. Certainly we see in the Bible that miracles happen, but most often we see them clustered around key messengers of God, especially when there are new periods of revelation. For example, Moses the lawgiver. The new prophetic witness led by Elijah and Elisha. And, of course, the messianic ministry of Jesus and the apostles, so that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all uh, perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So let's take the healing of the crippled man as an example. It's the first and it's the longest miraculous cure described in the book of Acts. It had five obvious characteristics, which when taken together tells us what the New Testament means by the miracle of healing. First, the healing was of a serious organic condition and could not be regarded as a psychosomatic cure. I had a friend who, describing much of modern day of the modern day healing movement, said, Apparently, God only does internal medicine these days. But Luke is absolutely clear that this man had been crippled from birth, chapter 3, verse 2. He was now more than 40 years old, chapter 4, 22, and was so handicapped that he had to be carried everywhere by his family and friends. Humanly speaking, his case was hopeless Doctors could do nothing for him. Second, the healing took place by a direct word of command in the name of Christ without the use of any medical means. It's true Peter gave him a helping hand, but this was not part of the cure. It was just helping somebody up who already had regained strength in his ankles. Third, the healing was instantaneous and not gradual. Acts 3, 7 through 8, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood up and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Fourth, the healing was complete and permanent, not partial or temporary. This is stated twice. The man had been given perfect soundness, Peter said to the crowd in 3.16. Later, Peter and John stood before the council Uh, in the chapter we're in, and Peter said, this man stands before you whole. And fifth, the healing was publicly acknowledged to be indisputable. There was no doubt or question about it. The crippled beggar was well known in the city. Uh, That's made That point's made repeatedly. Now he was healed. And it wasn't only the disciples of Jesus who were convinced, but also the enemies of the gospel. The unbelieving crowd, it says, were filled with wonder and amazement 
And even the council of the Sanhedrin said, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Scripture teaches us that miracles do happen, but they are not everyday occurrences. They are neither impossible nor are they normal. We recognize that God works both through natural means and through miracles. John Stott wrote, When a healing miracle is claimed, we expect it to resemble those in the Gospels and in the Acts, and so to be instantaneous and com- and so to be the instantaneous and complete cure of an organic condition without the use of medical or surgical means, inviting investigation and per- persuading even unbelievers, so it was with the con- congenital cripple. So Peter took his miraculous healing as the text for his sermon to the crowd and his speech to the council. Word and sign together bore testimony to the unique and powerful name of Jesus. The healing of the cripple's body was a vivid demonstration of the apostolic message of salvation. This is what God does to sinners. Now one last thing. I want to come back to their citing of Psalm 2. Remember, they're facing opposition, not just some opposition. This is the basic, the same opposition that killed Jesus. This is, doesn't get any more scary, dramatic than this. We face opposition. We face personal trials. We face all kinds of things that cause us to be afraid, to lose sight that God is sovereign and forget and to worry and to be anxious Remember, one of the problems is the whole world is anxious because they don't know who they are or why they're here. But we do know who we are. We're the people of God. We do know why we're here, for the glory of God, the sovereign God, the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them. That God is our God. And so as they're praying and they they think back to Psalm 2, they remember God is sovereign. I, I Many of you have read Arthur W. Pink, his book on the sovereignty of God. I pulled that off the shelf. I said, I want a good definition of the sovereignty of God. So here's from A.W. Pink. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. The sovereignty of God of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity. Now, if God possesses this kind of absolute sovereignty and authority, and then Jesus said this to his disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross and then ultimately ascend to the throne of God, and now he has sent his apostles, his disciples out into the world to represent him, 
And what does he send them with? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much? All of it. Not most of it. Not some of it. Not over here in this little corner we call the church. All authority that's in heaven and all the authority that's in the earth. That's how much authority has been given to Jesus. Go, therefore. Stand on that. That's the basis of your going. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want to read and close by reading all of Psalm 2, all 12 verses in that light. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, got it? All the rulers of the world, the worldly leaders, say, let's get together and let's plot and plan to do what? Let us break their bonds in pieces, referring to God and his Messiah. What are their bonds? What is... What are those bonds? What are the boundaries that God has set? His word. His law. We don't want God's word to tell us what to do. Sound familiar in the garden? We don't want him telling us what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. We want to break God's bonds into pieces and cast those cords away from us. We don't want to be restricted in our power. And then I love the response here. This is God. He who sits in the heavens when he sees this meeting, you know, the uh, all the leaders of the nations, when he sees this meeting, it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. When he, when he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. By the way, all those who met there that day and all the Roman leaders and all those who plotted against Jesus and all the rulers who've done this, where are they now? Well, when he speaks to them in his wrath and, his dis- and distresses them in his deep displeasure, and he says, yet I have set my king, who's his king? Jesus, on my holy hill of Zion. King of kings, Lord of lords. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. 
Verse 7, God says, I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, this is Jesus speaking now, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then the father says to the son, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You think Jesus forgot to ask? Just ask for the nations and I'll give them to you. You, the father speaking to Jesus, shall break them, who? The nations. With a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever been in one of those pottery places where you go outside and there's just rows and rows of clay pots? Those are the nations. And Jesus has an iron rod and he's going to go through there and break them. The last three verses. It's a warning. By the way, the Sanhedrin would have known this psalm. So, um, and, and obviously the people gathered there knew it. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then the last line, blessed, happy are all those who put their trust in him, in the Messiah, in Jesus. This ought to lift us up. This is not an abstraction. This is not just a fairy tale. This is the truth. We need to pray better and more often. We need to pray first when something happens, not later, not when we get around to it, not when all else has failed. I guess all we can do now is pray. How about we pray first and remember he is the sovereign Lord of the whole thing, including me. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord who created and maintains every atom in the universe, who has numbered the hairs on our head and knows when each sparrow falls, look upon us in our weakness and frailty and continue to work in us, for us, and through us. You rule over all of human history, and you rule over us. Lift us up so that we might complete the race with boldness as we speak your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The same Lord who has all authority and who is sovereign over all the nations is also sovereign over your life. How fast and how often do you go to him in prayer and acknowledge his sovereignty and his power? You see, we have to maintain that big perspective, the big picture. We just get caught up in the moment. We have tunnel vision. It's very narrow, very scary. 
But when we back up and we see the bigger picture, uh, it helps us not forget who's in charge. There's an old hymn that reminds us, like hymns do, of what we already know, and I just want to read the lyrics of this hymn. Have faith in God when your pathway is lonely. He sees and knows all the way you have trod. Never alone are the least of his children. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God when your prayers are unanswered. Your earnest plea he will never forget. Wait on the Lord. Trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God. He'll answer yet. Have faith in God in your pain and your sorrow. His heart is touched with your grief and despair. Cast all your cares and your burdens upon him and leave them there. Oh, leave them there. Have faith in God, though all else fail about you. Have faith in God. He provides for his own. He cannot fail, though all kingdoms shall perish. He rules He reigns upon his throne. And the refrain of that hymn, Have faith in God. He is on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches for his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. O Lord, always be our support and strength in this spiritual warfare wherein we have pledged today to engage anew against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have solemnly renounced our sins and expressed our desire above all things to be delivered from them. Be graciously pleased to accept these sincere intentions and desires and to consider our many weaknesses. Keep us steadfast in the resolutions we have made against every evil way. We pray now that you would bless our rest and our feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.